And we see in this chapter uh, the, the, uh, really uh, the work of the devil, don't we? Where he attempts to break up and to destroy this church, which had, uh, which had been uh, founded, or which had been uh, brought into existence by the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, remember, on the day of Pentecost. And they had faced many hardships, many persecutions from without and from within. But now Satan uh, will work to tear apart, right? And, and my friends, already we can learn a point of application here, right? That when Satan attempts to tear up, to, uh, to destroy the church of God, this is one of the, the uh, methods that he finds so much success, and that is to tear them apart, to pull them apart, divide and conquer. Satan has had so much success with that method. But we also see here uh, the promise of God, the promise of God in effect that God said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a very serious thing that we encounter in this chapter, dear congregation. A very serious thing. The, 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 the church, you might say, is wavering. What will happen? Because it could all come to an end at this point. Well, God preserves his church, and we hope to see that. Now, the particular question that the devil is using to drive a wedge between the believers, right, is this old question. We've seen it many times already, right? What do we do with these Gentile peoples who are coming into the church, who are believing in Christ and joining the church? Remember that the church at the beginning, dear friends, was Jewish, was all Jewish people. But then over time, remember Philip went to Samaria, the Samaritans started coming in, the Ethiopian eunuch came in, and slowly on, these Gentile believers begin to hear the gospel, they love the gospel, they believe it, and they, they come into the church. Now what do we do with them? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the laws and the rituals of the laws of Moses? What are we to do with these people? And you know that, uh, that the, the God himself answered the question to the Apostle Peter. Remember that sheet that came down out of heaven with all these unclean animals in it? And God said to Peter, Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed. And again, that language takes us back to that baptism in the Spirit that God gave to his church on the day of Pentecost because the baptism of the Spirit is a cleansing baptism. It is a cleansing thing. The Spirit came down on the church and cleansed them from sin. And God says, Don't you call unclean what I have cleansed by that same baptism. And we know at the end of that chapter there was another baptism of the Spirit, right? The Spirit of God came down, not just upon the Jewish people. I don't know, I'm not sure there were any Jewish people there, to be honest. But certainly upon the household of Cornelius, he cleansed them with the Spirit of God and took their sin away. Well, this now comes to a head, doesn't it? Because in Antioch, you have this, this issue, right? You can see that in verse 1, men came from Judea and began teaching the brethren. By the way, when you see the word brethren there, you should read Christians, right? Believers. That's a, the term brethren is, a, is another term for believers. And their teaching is that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas argue and debate this, and the church finally comes to the agreement to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to hear the mind of the apostles on this question, to get the decision of the leaders of the church at the time. Remember, the apostles were uniquely gifted by God with the immediate uh, uh, knowledge of, of God's will in these matters. Right? They, they received immediate revelation from God. Not just that they understood the scriptures, 
But God spoke to them very directly, just as we just said, right? God spoke very directly to Peter with that vision that he gave him in the, tan- the house of Simon the Tanner. So then we have what we call this Council of Jerusalem, because when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders in the church come together to make a decision on this point. And so we've often called it the Jerusalem Council. And maybe that word isn't exactly the correct word, because uh, when we think council, we think of a, a general council, right, where all the churches come together. Uh, we would call it in our own church polity a synod. But it really wasn't that, was it? It really was a question from the Antioch church to the apostles in Jerusalem to hear their mind on this. So not technically a council, not really a synod so much. Uh, but at any rate, that, that language kind of persists. And, uh, but in it, so we understand, right, that there's this, this coming together of the churches to resolve this matter for the peace of the church. And uh, we come then to the different positions that are taken on this question. Now, the first and most obvious position is that of the Judaizers. And this is the the name that's been given to this group of people uh, that we have to understand correctly. So let's consider first then the Judaizer position. And it's already given us in verse 1. They say, uh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what's to be done with these Gentile believers? Well, say the Judaizers, they are to be welcomed into the church, but they must be circumcised. And in fact, if you jump down to verse 5 with me, look at Acts 15 and verse 5, you can see that But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. This is the Judaizer position. Yes, they may come into the church, but they have to observe the laws and the rituals of the law of Moses. Now, it's very interesting in verse 5 who these people are. Notice that in verse 5 it says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. Notice, congregation, that God had converted men from the Pharisees to the Christian faith. Now, Paul himself was a Pharisee, remember? Paul himself was a Pharisee. But evidently, the word of God had come with power to more of the Pharisees. And in fact, I believe there's other places in Acts as well where many of the Pharisees actually converted to God, converted to Christ. Remember that these people, these Judaizers, are not Jewish in the sense that they hold to the Jewish religion. They're Jewish ethnically. That's correct. But they're no longer adherents to the Jewish religion. They are Christians. They have believed in Christ as their Savior. They've known the forgiveness of their sins by faith in Christ. But they insist that these Gentile believers must keep the laws and the rituals of Moses. That is the Judaizer position. Well, now we come then to the, uh, Peter's argument, or his position. What's his, how does he answer this question? Now, we already know from Acts 10 how Peter's going to answer this question. This is not a surprise to us. And in fact, we can say, Uh, Really, my friends, that this question was not new to the apostles generally, even in Jerusalem, because they had already, Peter had already been there, had already shared with them his story, and furthermore, Paul himself had made a visit to Jerusalem. He says in Galatians chapter 2 that I visited with the apostles privately to discuss with them the revelations that he had received about the gospel in the Arabian desert. So this was not new to the apostles. In fact, congregation, uh, not only was the question not new to them, but God's answer was not new to them. 
They knew what God's mind was on this issue. Again, because they had heard from Peter and they had heard from Paul. And Paul makes it very clear from Galatians chapter 2 that these men extended to him the right hand of fellowship. And they even said that the apostle Peter will be the apostle to the Jewish people and Paul, you will be the apostle to the Gentile people. Again, that's why I say it's, it's hardly a council as we would generally think of it. The answer was already clear. The apostles just needed to speak officially. So what is Peter's argument? Peter's argument is, I'll put it in a sentence, and again, I think the children have this question on their notes. Peter's argument, or his position, is uh, God himself is working here. Or, or you could say God himself has spoken. Maybe that's better. Let's use that. God himself has spoken. That's Peter's position. God has already spoken on this issue. So in verse 7, we see Peter stand up. And he relates how God visited him in the house of the tanner and how he was able to preach to Cornelius. And he says in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart... Now, don't miss that. God, who knows the heart... Right? Peter doesn't profess to know people's hearts. But he said, God certainly knows the hearts. Testified to them, in other words, to these Gentile believers who were gathered at the house of Cornelius, giving them the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, at the house of Cornelius was a very visible thing. Right? It was something that they saw with their own eyes. That's different in our day, right? We don't see it as visibly. But in those days, in the day of Pentecost, they even had tongues of fire on their head, right? So, so giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he, that is God, made no distinction between us and them. And here's that same word again, cleansing, right, or baptizing their hearts by faith. In other words, simply by reason of the fact that they had put their trust in Jesus, God cleansed them from their sins. And the same thing that he did to us Jewish people who were circumcised, that he also did to these uncircumcised people, these Gentile people who are not circumcised, who do not keep the laws and rituals of Moses' laws and don't even know what those laws and rituals are. But God cleansed us and them, and he made no distinction. And then comes the key point. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? You see, Peter is saying, God has spoken. God has given us his mind on this issue. And if we make any other decision but to allow these Gentiles in the church simply because they've believed in Jesus, then we are, we are resisting God himself. God has spoken on this issue. And if we, make, if we require these Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep this and that and the next thing from the Mosaic Law, we don't resist. You're not resisting me, Peter, or you're not resisting Paul or Barnabas. You're resisting God himself. Again, Peter's position, God has spoken on this issue. He spoke in the household of Cornelius, and he's spoken all these other times that these people came in and they received the cleansing ministry of the Spirit of God just like we did, and they're still uncircumcised. They haven't even been circumcised yet. But God has made his mind clear by giving them, that, giving them the Holy Spirit who's cleansed them, and it's only because they believed in Christ. You know, we heard a similar message 
from Stephen. I put this down here, but in Acts 7, in verse 51, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, when he's on trial, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. You see that, that same kind of language. Don't resist God. God is at work here. Don't stand in his way, says Peter. Now, at this point, uh, we read at verse 12 that all the people kept silent, and they were listening to, this is in verse 12, and, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You might say that Paul and Barnabas pile on here, right? Paul and Barnabas say, listen, brothers, it's not just what Peter was saying over here about what happened at the house of Cornelius, but let me tell you about all the miracles Barnabas and I saw. And remember, my friends, a miracle is a sign. A miracle is a sign. A miracle just isn't a a marvelous thing that happens, right? A A miracle, in the scripture at least, is a sign of God's action. When a miracle happens, that means that God is at work here. God, just last week, I believe we had that man in Lystra, right, who was lame, and he was healed immediately. Well, that's not just, you know, thankful he's healed, right? No, this is a sign that God himself has broken into human history, as it were, and he's working here. He's at work. He's active. And so when Paul and Barnabas relate these miracles, they're saying, yes, God worked in the house of Cornelius. He cleansed the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, by faith only. But he's also at work here. And let me tell you what happened in, who remembers all the four cities? Right? Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, A-I-L-D. Right? Let me tell you what happened in Antioch. Let me tell you what happened in Iconium, and in Lystra, and in Derby. In one of those cities, remember, Paul was flat out stoned to death. In Lystra. Stoned to death, probably. At least near death. And God brought him back. And he walked the 25 miles to Derby. So God is at work. And Paul and Barnabas, you might say, support Peter's argument with their miracles that they relate. Now we come to James' position. What's James' argument? What's his idea? James' position, children, James' position is this. The Scripture says. The Scripture says. In other words, James is going to turn to the Bible. And he's going to give a proof text. All right? The scripture says. That's what James, that's his position. James' position, of course, he agrees with Peter and with Paul. My friends, let me just note, and I think I said this before in a previous sermon on the, on the letter that James wrote. Remember that James is the leader, you might say, of the Jewish Christian community within the church. James is very much a man who, is, who has all these Jewish Christians and the Judaizers, behind him, you might say. He's their leader. He's, you might say, their, I don't want to say their, well, kind of, their, their, their pastor, so to speak. He stands for them. He's in a very difficult situation here. Because these Judaizers are going to be expecting James to stand up for their position. And again, this is where you see the grace of God in such a powerful way. Don't forget, James never had a vision from God like Peter did. James never had such a vision. James had to learn these things simply by seeing the miracles that God was doing and come to that position himself, of course, as the grace of God led him. But James is in a very difficult position here. 
And that's why, in one sense, when we read about James' argument, this really is the miracle. This really is the miracle, what James says. Because if you don't have James on your side at this council, it's lost. Again, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, James has the ability to make or break this council. Humanly speaking. All right, what is James' position? The scripture says, so James begins to speak in verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. And he says, Simeon has related what happened to him in the house of Cornelius. But then he says, and again, you can almost see James' mind working here. Because, again, James did not have the vision that Peter had. And so what does James do when he looks for, is this really a work of God? Is this really something that God is doing in the world? And James' mind naturally goes back to Scripture. Hopefully that's the way we all would think, right? We want to say, what does the Bible say about this? Was this really God's plan all along to bring the Gentiles into the faith? And then you can see the Holy Spirit of God nudging loose texts in James' mind. And suddenly James thinks, wait a minute. I remember what God says in Amos 9. This is a quotation from the prophet of Amos. That's the verse that, that uh, James is going to quote here in, 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 our, in our Bible, in our translation. We have these letters in all capitals. After these things I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Right? That's a prophecy that God will bring the exiles back from Babylon and restore them to the land of Palestine. But then the verse goes on. So that the rest of mankind, who? The rest of mankind. That means the, other, the others, the Gentiles, not the Jewish people. But the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And then explicitly, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. You see, now the Spirit of God nudges this text loose in the mind of Amos, so that now Amos begins to reflect that God spoke, sorry, now James begins to reflect that God has spoken through the prophet Amos. And he has said that amongst the Gentile people out there, God has a people. God has a people who he chose from a never begun eternity and whom he will call in time to be his children, to come into his kingdom. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. And you know that expression, called by my name, that's a very common one in the Old Testament, actually. The expression is, is uh, that, that, the, that God would call his name over something. In fact, uh, in the book of Samuel, you'll find that uh, when the children of Israel, their armies are going to take a city, uh, Joab, the, the master mind of, of David's generals, Right, would come to this city and he would, he would capture it partially, but then he would call David to come. And David, you come and take the city. Otherwise, my name will be called over this city. It'll be called something like Joab town or something, right? But Joab says, David, you come and take it. Then your name will be called over this city. In other words, David will have conquered this city. He will own it. It'll be his city. It'll be his possession. And so these Gentiles who are called by my name, it doesn't mean that God had called them just then. right? Obviously, they were still living in paganism. But they are mine. They are owned by me. In other words, I chose them. They are elect from a never-begun eternity. They belong to me. They might not yet be professing faith in Christ, but they are my people. 
They belong to my kingdom, and I came to die and to save them. That's in verse 17. These Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. So here you have James then, as he's pondering and thinking through this issue, this text comes to his mind, and God blesses and teaches him through this text that the ministry of Paul and Barnabas is indeed a ministry of God himself. And so James' position is God has spoken, very similar to what Peter said, but James says it says even in the Bible. That's why I said the position of James or his argument here is the Bible says. The Bible says God predicted that he was going to take the Gentiles and save the Gentiles already in the Old Testament. So then the agreement is to send out a letter. To send an official letter to the churches containing the mind of the apostles on this. And let's look briefly then at this letter. It begins in verse 23, and they sent this letter by them. And then you have the text of it there. First of all, let's look at the, uh, who the letter is from. So the greeting here is the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles' greetings. And notice, dear friends, that this letter is from the apostles and the brethren who are elders. Now, if you go up to verse 22, if you back up a bit to verse 22, you'll notice that it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Do you notice that? With the whole church. So that really this letter comes from the apostles, the elders, and really the whole church in Jerusalem is sending this letter out. Now, of course, it's the apostles and the elders who speak authoritatively, but it's the whole church that has gathered to make this decision. So at any rate, the, uh, the letter is from the apostles and the elders speaking authoritatively. And who is it to? Well, you can see that it, it is uh, to the brethren, again, to the believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. So this letter is explicitly sent to the Gentile Christians. Now, you look at this this statement that we have in verse 24. Since we have heard that some of our number, in other words, these apostles and elders are recognizing that, yes, these men came from Jerusalem. You almost can, can, uh, if you read between the lines here a little bit, you can kind of read how irritated the apostles and the elders are that these men came from the Jerusalem church. We have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. And again, notice in verse 24, we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction. In other words, we did not teach them this truth. That teaching that you have to be circumcised in order to be a true Christian, that didn't come from us, say the elders and the apostles. That came from their own thinking. And it disturbed you, and it unsettled your souls. Again, you can see very clearly here that the apostles are speaking clearly with one mind that that teaching did not come from us. And and the answer then is, is, uh, is given, right, that that teaching is not to be followed, that the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, notice the language, that the ministry of Paul and Barnabas is our beloved, at the end of verse 25, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. In verse 27, 
you can see that the apostles and elders send two independent witnesses to testify that what Paul and Barnabas are saying is really true, and their names are Judas and Silas. And then we come to verse 29. And here we come to something puzzling. Verse 29. And the apostles and elders say that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. Now if you back up to verse 20, when they're still in session, they had decided to write a letter and it says in verse 20, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, that would be food contaminated by idols, uh, and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So what is this then? So are the apostles now saying, you Gentile Christians, you don't have to be circumcised, but there are these four things that you must not do. If you want to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus, and you have to abstain from eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. You have to abstain from eating blood, uh, and, and the same thing with things strangled. That may, was, the problem with something strangled was all the blood was still in it, right? So really, abstaining from eating blood and abstaining from eating things strangled is the same thing. The, the, something that had been strangled had all its blood in it. And so you'd end up eating the blood, and that's a no-no for Jewish Christians, or for Jewish people, I mean. So abstain from uh, blood, from eating blood, that is, and from things strangled, and from fornication. So in other words, you're saved by faith in Jesus and these four things. Now, obviously, the apostles aren't, aren't saying that, right? Uh, in fact, you can even kind of hear that in the language they choose. First of all, it says abstain I don't think we typically, as preachers, tell people, you know, try hard to abstain from sin. Right? I mean, no, you, you, don't, you don't sin, right? We use stronger language than that. But also at the very end, when it says, if you shall keep yourselves free from such things, you do well. Notice it doesn't say, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will be saved. That's not what it says. It says, you will do well. So what is this? Why are these four things tacked on to this letter? Well, you notice, my friends, here that these things have very much a, a, a sound of being Jewish ceremonies, Jewish rituals, Jewish, uh, may I call them kind of Jewish idiosyncrasies. Maybe that's not exactly the right word, but you get my point, right? Things that the Jews are really turned off by, are really offended by. And the apostles and the elders saying, out of deference to the Jewish sensitivities, abstain from these things. Now, we know that Paul will later in the New Testament say that it's not wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols. Paul explicitly teaches that at the end of of his letter to the Romans. It's not wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's not sinful. But here the apostles and the elders say, out of respect for these Jewish Christian people, abstain, and there's that language, right? Abstain. Not that it's always sinful, but just using your own liberty as Christians, abstain from those things so that you won't unnecessarily bring offense to the Jewish people generally who are not yet Christians but who perhaps are thinking of becoming Christians or those Jewish people who are already Christians and who are deeply offended by seeing someone eat that kind of food. And then the rest of the things here, eating blood and And fornication, now fornication seems a little out of place in that list because that's not just a Jewish sensitivity. Probably the fornication that is spoken of here is the kind of sin against the seventh commandment that took place in pagan worship, which was very common in pagan worship. There were sexual orgies that took place 
in pagan worship that, of course, were, 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 were terrible uh, uh, violations of the seventh commandment. And so don't participate in pagan worship is kind of what you can read there when it says and abstain from fornication. But at any rate, the apostles say, abstain from these things and you will do well. In other words, the evangelistic ministry to Jewish people will not be unnecessarily hindered by, you know, you people eating food sacrificed to idols and blood and such things, right? Uh, And the Jewish Christians themselves will not be unnecessarily offended. So abstain from such things and you will do well. And we know, of course, that eventually apostle, the Apostle Paul will tell them that uh, it's not wrong to do those things. So this is the list that, I've, that, uh, that the apostles give to the Gentile Christians. Well, my friends, let me make some applications on this point then. In the first place, uh, I would like to point out to you that from this Jewish or from this Jerusalem Synod or this Jerusalem Council, we see the right of the congregation to participate in the decision-making of the church. The right of the congregation, and by that I mean the laity, okay, which isn't usually a word we use because we don't like to distinguish so much between clergy and laity, but still I think it's a word to understand, right? It, the right of the, of the congregation as a whole, all the members of the congregation, to participate in the decision-making of the church. And that's based uh, in part then upon this passage where in verse 22 we read, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. The whole church participated in this discussion and had a hand in this decision making. We do not get the sense from this Jerusalem council, do we, that one of the elders, in this case it probably would have been James who had the most influence, that one of the elders, say James, of course the Roman Catholics want to say it's Peter, right, because of their doctrine of the papacy, but that one of these apostles stood up and handed down a decision to which they all had to agree. That doesn't seem to be the case. It seems very much that these men are are trying to persuade the body of their position. Right? There's an element of persuasion that is taking place. James is quoting the scriptures. Peter is talking about his experience in the household of Cornelius. And there is this attempt to persuade the body, not handing down a decision. Okay, this is the truth. This is what you will do. Go. That's not the the sense that we get from this council. And of course, we're told explicitly in verse 22 that the whole church had a hand in these discussions and in the decision-making. Now, the letter came from the apostles and the elders because, of course, they had the authority from God to speak authoritatively on this issue. For that reason, we disagree with the uh, hierarchical form of church government. We disagree with the Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, who have men set up who hand down decisions, and the entire congregation then is expected to, ad- to abide by those decisions. Now, of course, there are many other decisions in church polity, right? Should it be Presbyterian polity, right, where uh, authority rests more in the presbytery and not in the session, as they call it, right? Which, what the, by the session, they mean like our consistory. Or is it more congregational, more as, as we have in the URC here, where local churches have uh, the power um, to, uh, to manage and administer their own churches 
and maybe you've noticed this before, right, that the decisions that come down from synod or from classes are always uh, advisory. Have you noticed that language, right? That we, we seek the consent of the classes or the advice of classes. Again, that language is chosen very specifically to preserve the, the, uh, the elder-led uh, polity that we have in the United Reformed Church. Now, such questions are not going to be decided by this chapter. We might wish they were, but that's just, there's not that information given us, which is why there's a great deal of liberty and freedom in how churches rule themselves. But we do learn from, these, from this uh, account here that the people have a right, they have a say, they have a right to participate in the decision-making of the church. And that's one of the reasons why our polity is the way it is. I move on then to my second application, my friends, which is this unity. Now, I said it before here, and I'd like to say that again, because I think we see here illustrated in this story this principle. That sometimes it is more important to be united than to be right. Now, I I, want to say, my friends, that sometimes it's more important to be right than united. We know that. There are some issues that are just too important. And if they split the church, then that's what's going to happen. We must follow the scripture. But there's, a, there's many more issues, my friends, a whole raft of issues on which it is more important to be united than to be right. Or I could say, than to be shown to be in the right. Maybe I can say it that way. Sometimes it's better to keep an opinion to ourselves because, again, with the polity that we have, as I just stated in my first application, you have a right to your own opinions as they are based on the scripture between you and God. And we do not have the power to force anybody to think a certain way. right? We are not a hierarchical kind of church. We are not a Catholic or an Orthodox church where you have to adhere to the teachings of the bishop. I have no authority over you. No elder has any authority over you except insofar as he comes with the word of God. And then, of course, it's not me or the elders. It's the word of God right? that has the authority. That's the authority in our churches. But my friends, for all that, you see here how the apostles say, Gentile Christians, follow these four things. And actually we can can throw out fornication because that's obviously a sin against the the seventh commandment and that's always prohibited. But these other things are not necessarily prohibited by God's law. Eating things strangled, eating blood, and what was the other one? The uh, oh, uh, abstaining from things sacrificed to idols. Three things, right? That even later scripture will say are not violations of the law of God. But in the interest of unity, abstain from those three things. Don't give unnecessary offense. Yes, as a Gentile believer, you could stand up in the meeting of the church and say, I'm going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, he'd be right. He'd be right, but he'd be a fool. But he'd be a fool, according to the apostles' instruction here. My friends, some of us have been foolish in the past on this point. Me. I have bitter memories of when I put a higher value on being shown to be in the right. Than to, than, to, than to push for unity. And maybe you have bitter memories of that in the past. 
But let this story speak to us and let it speak to the life of our congregation as a church that it is more important many times to be united than to be right. And the apostles here make concessions to the Jewish believers which are not necessarily commanded by the law of God. Why? Because the apostles placed a higher value on love for growing believers, for new believers, for young believers who hadn't had all the opportunities for instruction in the faith than on strict adherence to orthodoxy. And that teaches us another lesson in this, in this, as we think about unity, my friends, and that is that you know God works in his own time and in his own method and in his own way. And sometimes when people are converted to Christianity from another church, and that does happen, right? People come from other churches and they weren't even Christians and they come to us and they still retain many of the same thinking and the same values that they took from the other church or from the other body. You can believe, my friends. I, I remember one time in, in the seminary when we had a woman who had converted from the Muslim faith and she just couldn't worship in our services without pulling a veil over her head. For her, it was just so ingrained, uh, right, that in the Arabic countries, of course, they, they cover their heads, don't they? they? They wear those veils over their head. That when she, was, when she was worshiping with us, even when she was talking to a male person, she just had it so ingrained in her conscience that she had to, she had to think, pull that thing over her head and, and cover herself like that. And of course, we, we, we acknowledged that and, 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 and gave our blessing to that. Because it's so much more important to be united and loving of that than to be right. So I hope you understand, my friends, that we can be guilty even of resisting the work of God if we think that Christians should, should immediately be exactly where perhaps we're at and where by the blessing of God we've been able to come. But there's a whole variety of things that we tolerate in order that the church can stay together and that the work of God can continue to grow and advance. Let's be careful of that in our own life as a church, and especially in a, in a denomination and congregation where we value these things so highly, orthodoxy and, and doctrinal correctness. Right? Even a strength that we have as a denomination can become a weakness. And the devil is so slick, so subtle in how he'll, he'll push us in that direction. My friends, the last point here is thanksgiving. How we should worship God for the care that he takes of his church. When the church was wavering, when Satan was closing in for the kill, he's closing in for the kill. He can smell it. But God came in, and by the Spirit, he enabled them to work out this compromise and to write this letter that brought the church's stability and grounded them in the truth of the gospel. The gates of hell shall never prevail against the work of God. And for that, my friends, we should be deeply thankful and we should be deeply grateful that God preserves the unity in this church and that he gives us such a heart to make those compromises that we need to make to protect and preserve the unity of our church. Let's give God the thanks, my friends, and bless his name for his care and preservation for his church. Let us pray. Almighty God, we draw near to you at the close of this service. And Lord, we know that the unity of the church, the unity of this local church even, can be a very fragile thing because the devil is so subtle and so clever in how he 
uh, works on the people of God to get them to prioritize the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so he can pull a church apart. Lord, we see uh, this illustrated for us in the early church at this Jerusalem council when they came so close to a razor's edge almost of being torn apart and the work of God being destroyed. Lord, we think especially of, <clears throat> of James and, and what must have gone on in his own heart and in his own life as he wrestled through this issue uh, without having a vision from you to give him clarity on it as the Apostle Peter had. And so in a, in a sense, Lord, we can, we can identify and sympathize so much with James and the wrestling that must have gone on in his own mind as he worked through the scriptures and tried to understand what work you were doing in his day and what position he should take. Lord, I pray that you will continue to bless our own church here. We pray, Lord, for our sister church in Kalamazoo, the Emmanuel Fellowship Congregation, and we pray for our whole denomination. Lord, that you would bless the United Reformed Churches and that the name that we have, United Reformed Churches, would not just be a name or a label or an identifier, but that it would be something at the very root of our soul as Christians, that one of our highest priorities and highest values is to preserve the unity of the body of Christ as expressed in our churches. Lord, will you bless us and remember us then in your mercy and hear our prayers. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our blue hymnal now to number 266. And in keeping with our last point, give thanks to God for his care over his people. Now Israel may say, and that in truth, if that the Lord had not our right maintained, if that the Lord had not with us remained when cruel men against us rose to strive, we surely had been swallowed up alive. We'll sing the three verses of number 266 in the blue hymnal.
stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.